Macworld Podcast number 128 for August 13th, 2008, sponsored by Audible.com. Audible.com is the Internet's leading provider of spoken audio entertainment. Macworld Podcast listeners can get a free audiobook now at www.audiblepodcast.com slash Macworld. Welcome to another Macworld Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Breen. According to the old Farmer's Almanac, we've just passed through the dog days of summer, which is just about right. After Apple's flurry of activity on July 11th, meaning the iPhone 3G, the iPhone 2.0 software, MobileMe, and the App Store, things have been pretty quiet in Cupertino other than the occasional apology and earnings boast. But that doesn't mean the world has stopped, and because it hasn't, we have a couple of gripping interviews for you. The first is my chat with Macworld Associate Editor Dan Moore and about iPhone issues that have hit the headlines in the last couple of weeks, applications appearing and then disappearing from the App Store, developers' concerns about how Apple runs the App Store, and Apple's weak lines of communication, a mysterious kill switch built into the iPhone software, and how you can save $999.99 by jailbreaking your iPhone. The iMac turns 10 this year, and to commemorate the event, executive editor Philip Michaels reminisces with editorial director Jason Snell, lab director Jim Galbraith, and senior editor Roman Loyola about the iMac's rich history. Before we get to these interviews, a little news and commentary. Earlier this week, I penned a response to PC World's article called 11 Things We Hate About iTunes, called Don't Be a Player Hater. The gist of the original article was that PC World's Rick Broida had 11 complaints about iTunes, including Apple's insistence that you download the entire iTunes application rather than a patch when a new version of iTunes arrives, the inclusion of Safari in the MobileMe control panel in Apple's software update application that it's included when you install iTunes on a Windows PC, no subscription music services from the iTunes store, and the fact that iTunes stops downloading episodes from a particular podcast you subscribe to if you stop listening to that podcast. My response was along the lines of, A, seriously, this is a pretty minor complaint, or B, you're talking through your hat. I put a link in the show notes to both articles if you'd like to give them a read. For me, the most valuable thing that comes from the experience was the notion that maybe iTunes does need improvement. The question is, in what way? A few folks who commented on my response suggested that iTunes is too cluttered, where once you had a reasonably simple music application based on Cassidy and Green Sound Jam, you now have a program that catalogs your music, videos, podcasts, and iPhone applications, plays all these media types, save applications, of course, streams internet radio, burns CDs and DVDs, pops up a visualizer you can space out to, synchronizes music and data to iPods and iPhones, streams content to Apple TVs, converts media from one format to another, acts as a front end for the iTunes store, edits ringtones, and poaches salmon, apparently. And is that too much? Is this the kind of application you want to throw at a new computer user with the expectation that they'll be able to manage their media in an intuitive way? Or has it become a bloated mess? I think the truth lies somewhere between. I'm perfectly comfortable with iTunes, but then it's my business to be comfortable with it. I may use half of its capabilities, and I'm a power user. I expect that the casual Mac or PC owner uses half again of what I do, and that's too bad, as it's a remarkably powerful application. My fear, however, is that if Apple determines to make iTunes easier to use, we're going to end up with iMovie 08, an application that certainly slimmed down, but loses too many at 
least in my opinion, of its more interesting and powerful features. So in order to keep those interesting and powerful features, which way do you turn? Do you make multiple applications? Stick with a single application that includes a tabbed interface that more clearly segregates different components of iTunes? Or do you stay the course and continue heaping more features into iTunes with the expectations that users are going to use what they need and leave the rest behind? My money's on a redesigned single app with a more compartmentalized interface. The hint is in the look of the iPod and iPhone's interface within iTunes. Select one of these devices in iTunes source list, and the iPod or iPhone's functions are nicely split up among a series of tabs. Extending that metaphor to the rest of iTunes might make for a more manageable application. But that's just me. What do you think? Drop me a line at podcast at macworld.com, leave me a voicemail at 415-520-9761, and make it good, and we may play it in a future podcast, or use Macworld's forums to offer up your two cents. And now Dan Morin and I discuss the week's iPhone news. I'm joined by Macworld Associate Editor Dan Morin, who is one of the driving forces behind Macworld's iPhone Central. As that driving force, Dan has had his finger on the pulse of all things iPhone, and as such, I've invited him to talk with us about iPhone-related issues that have cropped up in the last couple of weeks. Thanks for being here, Dan. No problem, Chris. Now, you said driving, and then you said the finger on the pulse. Am I a doctor? Am I a race car driver? I just want to get in the right mode here. Well, you see, basically, I've, I've mixed some metaphors here, and so uh, I'm kind of hoping that you wear a couple of different hats in addition to the cap that you normally sport. That's a, that's a lot of hats. Uh, I, can, I can do my best, but it's going to be hard to clear the doorways. <laughs> okay, well, fortunately, you're not moving around, so just so, sort of set yourself, balance, and uh, we should be okay. All right. All right. So let's start with the on-again, off-again nature of some applications at the app stores. They're here one day, and then they're gone the next. So what's the story behind some of these applications making it through Apple's vetting process and then disappearing? Well, you know, there's a lot of questions in air in that, and I think the biggest one is no one really understands, it seems, what the Apple's vetting process entails. Uh, we've seen all these applications come through and then get disappeared. In a lot of cases, uh, Apple then cites reasons why they took them off the store, but what nobody really knows is why they got in there in the first place. I mean, the prime example, I think, was the one that people started to get up in, air, uh, up in arms about was uh, Null River's NetShare which was a program that let you turn your iPhone essentially into a modem for your, for your Mac um, or PC. Uh, you could then get on the Internet using the 3G radio, uh, and then it would connect via Wi-Fi to your computer, which is great if you're you know, someplace you can't get a Wi-Fi signal, but you want to do something a little more in-depth than uh, it might require more than just the iPhone's touch keyboard. Right. Uh, that was on there for, what, a few hours. Uh, then it got pulled. And everyone's like, oh, well, you know, that's not much of a surprise because it, it violates AT&T's terms of service about using uh, the iPhone. Uh, and then it came back, <laughs> yeah. which was a little – everyone was like, oh, that's, that's weird. So I, w I went out and grabbed it uh, at that point uh, just figuring, well, I, who knows how much longer it's going to be there. And it's kind of a useful uh, implementation. So uh, I downloaded it uh, and then it disappeared again. <laughs> yeah, and I grabbed it as well. And I think that was – you know, if you were to look at it purely from a marketing standpoint – what a great way to sell these apps because maybe I would have purchased it, but it's like everybody got on Twitter and said, it's back. And like everybody downloaded it and paid them 10 bucks. I don't know what they made in a couple of hours that it was still up there, but I'm sure it's more than they would have otherwise. Well, I mean, that's definitely true. Although, you know, the best part of marketing is usually your product is actually available. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, now they're kind of stuck. There's, there's not much anybody can do. If you wanted it, your, your chance is pretty much gone short of going down the, uh, the jailbreak route. 
Um, but that that was that was just the beginning of of sort of this deluge of applications that that have started you know showing up and disappearing. And and it's in some cases Apple's given a reason to developers, in some cases not so much, and in most cases they just. They aren't very communicative, period, and, and that's something a lot of developers have complained about. Yeah, well, in the case of NetShare, I know that there was a communication error, and, and no River was documenting this and saying, well, we've tried to contact Apple, and we're getting these automated responses. Do we actually know why it was pulled? We all think it was pulled because of the AT&T issue, but do we actually have confirmation that that was it? Did Apple tell them finally? I, I don't believe they did. Um, I mean, I think... I think I read at one point the Null River guy saying, well, you know, hey, we were basically surprised that it made it up there in the first place. Right. Um, but I, I don't know if they uh, – I don't recall if they came up with an actual explanation from Apple. Uh, and even in the cases where Apple has given explanations, it's not always something that's uh, – you know, that the developers even agree with. I'm thinking of the example of a uh, an application, a kind of a silly joke application called Slasher, mm-hmm. um, which was basically – a little gimmick that it would show a picture of a knife on the phone, and then when you shook the phone, it would play like the nah, 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 or something like that sound, you know, sort of like a psycho sound. Uh, and that apparently got pulled, and the reason was given that it was uh, objectionable content. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I understand there was another app that was pulled because I think it was a burp or something. And uh, so apparently somebody at the App Store found that distasteful, and so they went back to the developer and said, yes, you can do these sound effects, but you can't do a burp because we find that objectionable. And I, I think the, the difficulty here is Apple's really digging themselves into a hole because by being the ultimate arbiter of what gets in and out of the store, uh, they've really pinned all the responsibility on themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and thus, when things go wrong, uh, you know, they're the obvious person to point a finger at. Uh, both from the developer side and from the consumer side. So when you have an application, another great example that I'm sure everybody has heard about at this point is the I Am Rich application, Mm -hmm. which was, uh, for those of you who don't know and do have the requisite $1,000, it was a $1,000 application on the App Store that basically showed a little picture of a red gem, and then I think it had a secret mantra in there. But it actually cost $1,000, and apparently around eight people bought it before it got pulled from the store. Now, the question is, you know... it should this have made it through the application vetting process in the first place? And if not, well, on what grounds? I mean, is, is Apple really making a distinction based on taste? Uh, I mean, according to uh, a spokesperson who spoke to the Wall Street Journal, they said it was a ju- they made a judgment call and removed the application from the store. Um, but, I mean, on what, I guess what it keeps coming back to for me is like if, if Apple is the ultimate arbiter here, how do they decide? And if that decision isn't really transparent, how do developers know going into this, well, I'm making this application, if there's not sort of a, a, a litmus test for knowing uh, if this is going to make it past the vetting process or not, how does that communicate it? And, and how does that end up shaking out? Yeah, and I think what Apple will probably say, or actually they probably won't say it, but I think what what they're using here is that when Steve Jobs came up and and talked about the App Store and he said, now these are the six reasons that we may not allow something in, and pornography being one of them, intellectual property, another one. And then there was number six, which is basically said just because, leaving them, you know, and other uh, with the idea that maybe they will have to make these kind of judgment calls. And I can't help but think that the people running the App Store now had no idea that they were going to have to deal with these kind of issues and are now sort of arbitrarily saying, uh, no, not that one, but yes, this one. And 
and I, I think you're right. I think they are digging themselves into a hole because they make these sort of what seem to be capricious decisions. And then two months down the line, somebody does something similar and they let that through. Then you have the original developer coming back and saying, well, wait a minute, you know, that was a different kind of burp than us and they're allowed and we're not. And so what's that about? Well, I mean, and potentially it gets even more serious than that when you start thinking about, uh, you know, uh, this was Steve Jobs confirmed in that same journal article that the iPhone has this kill switch, uh, right. the ability for them to remotely deactivate a program uh, if it's malicious, if it's stealing your data, for example. Uh, and so the point is, if an application like that can make it through the vetting process, which is not by any means out of the question, because it's not as if they have the time to investigate each and every function of every single app that goes through the line. Uh, but they're going to, I mean, Apple's going to be one who gets blamed when that happens. I mean, they, they're the ultimate arbiter and they're complaining and, and they're claiming that they're vetting these apps based on things like security. Uh, then they better do a good job about it because otherwise, you know, people are going to be kind of upset when something like that makes it through. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's talk a little bit about this kill switch thing. Now, originally we heard about that there was some kind of location blacklist on the phone. Now, this is different from that, correct? Uh, we don't really know. But what we do know is that uh, there was a, a hacker who's written a couple books on iPhone development and he, while doing sort of a forensic analysis of different software frameworks on there, he came across something that looked like a blacklist. It was hidden in the core location framework. Now, that's the that's the software that dictates uh, the iPhone's GPS function, the Wi-Fi location, cell tower location, all of that, and lets other applications use that data for their, for their own purposes. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what it seems like this is is a page on Apple's servers that contains a list of information uh, about an application. And if Apple added an application to that list, uh, that application could no longer access your location data, which is probably a good thing in the, in the case that if there is an application that is somehow malicious, you probably don't want it to know where you are. Right. But that's all we knew about that. Uh, some people jumped to the conclusion that this meant that Apple could totally terminate any application on your phone, which – as I said, Steve Jobs then ended up confirming. But we don't know that those two mechanisms are the same thing. In fact, they may be distinct. Right. And we don't actually know the, the means that this will do it. For example, can Apple push a deactivation of an application to you as it can through kind of a push service for, for mobile me or Exchange? Or is it the kind of thing where they just put this thing on a blacklist and the next time you sync, that application disappears? Yeah, no one really knows how it works, um, which, I mean, is good and bad. On the good side, you know, it means that presumably it's harder for someone else to exploit, uh, which would be, I mean, you know, obviously that to me is is the, the most sure. worrisome scenario is that someone figures out how to put an, a perfectly valid application on that blacklist, uh, thus disabling it or removing it from people's phones. Right, right. Well, let's go back to developers for a minute. There's been some grumbling from the iPhone developer community about Apple leaving the NDA in place. A lot of people figured, okay, fine, we're going to have to be under NDA in order to develop the apps initially, but after that, Apple's going to lift it. At this point, they haven't, and developers are not happy about it. Uh, grumbling might be understating the case <laughs> a little bit. Outright yelling. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a lot of questions, and nobody really, again, nobody really knows. I mean, Apple hasn't is very mum on this issue. There have been uh, theories advanced from a couple different angles, one of them including that it may have something to do with uh, sort of keeping a lid on patents, on software patents, um, that uh, I, as long as the NDA is in place, those patents cannot be uh, challenged or something. I, I don't know the exact, exact legal uh, 
legal ramifications of that. But that's that's one idea. I mean, and then the other one is just that you know Apple's just generally it's being its own secretive self, and it doesn't really want to share its its toys with anybody else. But this is making it very hard for a lot of developers to do their work. I mean, they rely on not just Apple as a resource, but other developers. You know, if somebody comes up with a solution to a particular problem. Uh, that person can share it with their their fellow developers, and, and the Mac developer community is really very tightly knit. And so that this this communication and this community is a huge part of what it means to be a, a developer. And so they don't want to necessarily have to go and reinvent the wheel every time you know there's a problem that somebody else has already solved. So that understandably is is making them very very grumpy about uh, developing for the iPhone. Right. And so in addition to the NDA, what other kind of issues do they have? The, I guess the vetting process is another question many of them have. I mean, a lot of it really comes into communication, I think, is that, you know, we know Apple is secretive and uh, they've always been this way in terms of their product releases and things like that. But it seems like in a scenario like this where they're really counting on and touting this third party development opportunity that they really should be doing everything to sort of you know, foster goodwill with the developer community. And instead, it's just, it's like a brick wall sometimes, it seems, from the developers that I've talked to. You know, they don't know what's going on. They don't know why apps get ma- make it or don't get make it. This goes back to even, you know, when the, the iPhone developer program opened up and there were a bunch of people trying to get, you know, accepted to this as a program that people didn't know why some people got accepted and why other people didn't get accepted was it random was you know apple playing favorites or what have you and they you know they're all very excited about developing for this platform but i think they just like to you know have a little more communication with with apple and know what's going on and i think that's that's if apple doesn't have some sort of mechanism in place for dealing with developers you know some sort of point person whose job it is to sort of step out there and go look you know i'm I'm in charge of developer relations then they really desperately need that position right right now apple just the other day announced and i guess this was part of the wall street journal steve jobs interview where he said well we're making you know x millions of dollars for developers do you think that is going to uh calm some of these developers down and say well yeah maybe apple's not talking to us but look at the size of this check <laughs> well, I mean, I'm, I've no doubt that they, they like to get reimbursed for their uh, hard work. But, right. you know, I think software developers, especially on the Mac, which is, which is a platform that is, is very much, you know, is tied to so many people's identities. I think they, they do it not so much for the money, though that's obviously a nice part of it. But they, they like developing. They're excited about it. And, I mean, you can't also discount the, the number of people developing free applications for the iPhone. Uh, And obviously those free applications are a big part of driving traffic to the App Store. If people think, oh, I can go in there and just browse around and see what's free. Maybe then you find an application that you pay for and you like. But, you know, if those people aren't making a bundle on, you know, free applications that they're essentially giving away, then I don't think they're going to be assuaged by, you know, a giant zero, zero, zero check. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, given the number of people who are developing free iPhone applications – and who may feel that Apple hasn't quite got its ducks in a row. Do you see them then turning back to something like the jailbreak community and keeping that movement alive? You know, it's kind of like when it comes to Apple, so many of us, you know, consumers and developers alike, I think, have a have a form of Stockholm syndrome where we just, you know, even though we gripe and we gripe and we gripe about it at the end of the day, you, you know, we're still not going to leave our Mac or stop developing for the Mac. And, you know, I think if anybody does sort of decide to go out uh, and, and sort of say, you know, I'm fed up with this, I'm going to the jailbreak community. 
it's going to be a small percentage. It's going to be people who really can't make applications that will get past the uh, the, mm-hmm. uh, the vetting process. You know, people like NetShare, who it's like, you know what, we know we can't do this through the App Store, so our only option is to go through Jailbreak. I don't think you're going to see that for a lot of these these companies that are really just, you know, they want to make legitimate applications for the iPhone. They want to play well with Apple. It's just they're frustrated because they, they can't. Right, right. Well, I will say, however, on in regards to jailbreak applications, that somebody has created a clone of the I am rich application <laughs> uh, under jailbreak and I've installed it. And, uh, and so I feel that I've saved a thousand dollars just by jailbreaking my phone. That's pretty impressive. I also heard there was a version redeveloped for windows mobile, <laughs> <laughs> which I think kind of takes some of the fun out of it. I mean, I don't think I'm ready to spend a thousand dollars on any application. You know, I, I, I appreciate, you know, a lot of people say, always complain about how expensive software is. And I think, you know, when it comes to the iPhone, so many of the applications are, are so reasonable priced. Like, you know, $10 for an application does not seem like a big deal to me. 15 20 you know, around there, that, that's fine. $1,000, that might be my, over, my, over my budget there. I don't know how, uh, how our bosses would feel about reimbursing me. I, I think we really need a review of I Am Rich, right? Oh, clearly we need a review of that. Well, speaking of prices, are you surprised by the – when you look at the user reviews on some of these programs and people ding a program for being 20 bucks because it's a, it's an iPhone application. That's outrageous. How dare they charge $20 for this when on our computers, we're accustomed to paying 49, 99, $149 for an application and not blinking. There's always people who complain about things that cost too much. And, you know, for me, it depends. It's, it's a matter of value, right? I mean, there, there are people putting their hard time and energy into developing these products, and they, they certainly deserve to be reimbursed for that. But there's, you know, there's always going to be somebody who says, if this application was $10 cheaper, $15 cheaper, then I would buy it. And, you know, you, can't, you obviously can't please those people. It's, not, it's clearly not a value proposition that they're, they're interested in. But to complain about that, I think, for the uh, – for, you know, in a review of saying this app is too expensive. I mean, outside of something like I am rich, but I mean, it's up to you. You, you decide if you want to pay that or not, but it doesn't, I don't think it should implement this or it should impact necessarily how good the program is. And I think that's another aspect that I've heard a lot of developers complaining about is the, the reviews mm-hmm. where they have no way of, they have no conduit for talking to Apple and say, look, this review is inaccurate or this review uh, you know, is completely off topic or whatever. And there's no way of sort of clearing out all these people who are just making noise about an, a certain application and bringing down an application's rating in a, in a manner that may be unfair. And it's, they get very frustrated. I know when they're trying to deal with that and say like, I'm just trying to make this application. I really want to share this with people, but you, know, you get all these trolls complaining about it. All right. Well, let's talk, turn to your personal experience with the iPhone 3G because I think you're one of the very first people that got one within uh, Macworld, and now you've had it for about a month. So what do you think? Does it live up to your expectations? Um, you know, I was a big fan of the original iPhone. I loved using it for the last year, and in, in some ways I think the 3G is uh, a nice improvement, but – uh, overall, I don't find it. It hasn't been the same life changer that the you know going from a normal phone to the iPhone was for me. It was just sort of a a little a little bump. Um, there are a couple things that I really like. I like the GPS um, mm-hmm. when it works. <laughs> I have had some occasional problems with it, um, but and I like the other big thing for me is the uh, non recessed headphone jack is just huge. I can't I can't you know I can't begin to tell you how big a deal that is for me. <laughs> um, but besides those, I mean, you know, the iPhone, the first generation iPhone did uh, pretty much everything 
you know, that the, the 3G does. And I, I ran some, uh, I wrote a, a few weeks ago, I did some speed tests between the 3G and Edge and found rather surprisingly that uh, the Edge where I am, the Edge network is actually pretty good and that the, the margin of improvement between the Edge and 3G networks was not very big. I mean, it's definitely an improvement, but it was not as marked as, say, we did a, I had John Saf, our colleague, tested in San Francisco. And there it was a, you know, downtown San Francisco, it was a significant jump from the Edge mm-hmm. network to the 3G. Um, but where I am, the, the Edge network is faster, apparently, but the 3G network is slower. <laughs> so the, the uh, difference between them is not as great as I thought it would be. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. And, and has, was that just a glitch or is that just pretty much the way it is where you live? It's pretty much the way it is. I mean, I don't know why that's the case. It's just if they're not finished deploying the network or if it's not really fine-tuned or what. But uh, that's just, for me, that's been pretty much standard operating procedure. And, you know, I run into a lot of scenarios where uh, the 3G, it seems like I don't have any signal there, even though I'm in an area that supposedly has 3G coverage. And, I mean, overall, the most frustrating thing about that is that um, I'm not getting that much speed improvement, but I am training my battery a heck of a lot faster. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) So are you just turning 3G off now so to, to save battery? I do a lot of times, but you know, I tend to keep it on in the hopes that it'll actually help uh, help me when I need it. But honestly, it's the, the, the return on investment that I've seen there is is not very high. And I feel like it's very frustrating for me that I've had my phone, you know, by the end of a day, you know, if I've had moderate to heavy usage of my phone, I am running on lower than ten percent battery power, uh, or my phone is in danger of, you know conking out entirely and you know what good's 3g to you then yeah exactly and you're just doing this is normal use i mean you're not like watching movies and and no, downloading no, a I, ton of stuff no i mean you know this is web browsing email you know twitterific this oh stuff you mean like using that. it like you're supposed to use it yeah it's perfectly reasonable no I, I i don't really yeah i don't really use it that much i'm usually in front of my laptop so that's used for most of the stuff but um you know you, you spend time you look up a, a couple facts to you know or in an argument with a friend or you know you play a little bit of a song or a youtube video or something and pretty soon you're you're down to 20 percent of your battery power and that's it's pretty irritating <laughs> yeah well i'm sure that apple will look upon this as a rich third-party opportunity for those who make external battery packs I really want to plug a big dongle into my nice, sleek iPhone, though. <laughs> yeah, and that's, and that's what I've seen so far is kind of these massive things that's dangling off the bottom of your iPhone, which is not practical. Yeah, the thing I end up doing most of the time is actually just carrying the USB cable around with me and then just plugging into the computer when I'm not using it and letting yeah. it charge or plugging into a uh, car charger when I'm in the car. Yeah, and that's uh, that's not an ideal solution for a portable computing device, but um. yeah, but it, it helps you make do. I mean, if you're not if you're not really going anywhere for a little while, you know, I just try to charge it whenever I'm not actively needing to use it, in the hopes that I, you know, I, you know, worried that someday I'm going to get into a situation where I desperately need a phone and I'm going to be out of the battery. So, no. nope. That car horn tells us that we're out of time. You could, you could hear that. I could. You have a very good mic. To close my windows next time. No, no, that's good because uh, it, it, it's a signal to wrap up, and which we now shall. Dan is one of the most prolific guys at MacWorld, and it's true you are. Um, and you can find his work not only at iPhone Central, but MacUser.com and, of course, MacWorld.com. And thanks very much for being here. Thank you, Chris. It was a pleasure as always. And now, before our roundtable discussion on the IMAX 10th anniversary, a word from our sponsor, Audible.com. 
Audible.com is the leading provider of digital spoken word entertainment, offering 40,000 audiobooks for your iPod. Get a free audiobook download when you try the service at www.audiblepodcast.com slash Macworld. Check out great titles like I Was or The Second Coming of Steve Jobs with your free audiobook credit. This is a special offer for Macworld Podcast listeners. So to get your free audiobook, visit www.audiblepodcast.com slash Macworld. And now, the IMAX 10th anniversary. We fired up the Wayback Machine for this uh, installment of this particular Macworld podcast. We've also added uh, apparently annoying sound effects from one of the panelists. Uh, I'm Philip Michaels. I'm the executive editor of Macworld.com. I'm joined by Jason Snell, uh, editorial director of Macworld. Hello. Who lives here in the podcast room. It is the pod cave. And, uh, and I am Podman. Senior reviews editor Roman Loyola. Howdy. And Macworld lab director James Galbraith. Hello. And I've gathered these old men here today <laughs> because all of them were alive. Well, I was alive too, but all of them were alive and either working for Mac-based publications at the time in the case of Jason or had recently fled Mac-based publications at the time of the IMAX launch. That uh, happened 10 years ago. This very Friday was when the iMac was actually released, The Waiting World. It had been announced, I believe, in the in May of 1988. 1998 yes. is only 10 yes. years. Imagine mm-hmm. if the iMac were designed in 1988. Oh, boy. It would be white plastic with like big pointy edges. Mm-hmm. It would have the fade haircut at the top. Yeah. Oh, it would be interesting. And it would but... come with a, uh, with a Duran Duran album, mm-hmm. I think. But anyhow, this is not alternative history. This is real history. And I thought we could talk about uh, your thoughts, your remembrances of the iMac, uh, iMac ship date. And let's start off with Jason because it's a story as old as time. The only one I believe of us who was actually employed by a publication at the time, Mac user, correct? Uh, no, I was at Macworld. That, oh, was, the, that was in the Macworld days. The I guess the backstory here is that is that Jim and Roman and I all worked together at Mac User, but in the dark times when they shut down Mac User, Jim and Roman left to pursue other interests, as they say, mm-hmm. and uh, only later to return uh, because the gravitational pull of the of the Mac couldn't be resisted. But um, but I was at MacWorld in in '98, and and yeah, the 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 story is that. Apple had had these um, briefings for various uninteresting products, and you know Jobs was back, but we hadn't really seen a lot from Apple since Jobs had returned, other than he killed the clones. Um, and then they held this they held this new product announcement, and we were all not interested because everything they'd been announcing wasn't interesting. And only one person actually from MacWorld went down to the the launch, and uh, they announced the iMac. So you know, frantic phone calls later. Um, we were all told to assemble immediately. I was actually working at home that day and I had to throw on some pants and come into the office. Um, and it was huge because it really did change Apple's fortunes. That was the thing that uh, let us realize that Jobs' return wasn't sort of Jobs giving Apple a Viking funeral but was actually a turnaround. Now, Roman, where were you at the time that uh, that uh, the Bondi Blue machine was being – the, when the Bondi Blue Machine came out, I was actually working for a small circulation NT publication, a Windows NT publication. Wow. So what happened was I was at Mac user with Jason uh, 
And then I left about, I think it was September of 97. Of 97, yeah. I left. And I decided at that time that the Mac wasn't doing so hot during that time that I better expand my horizons in terms of my career and get into this Windows thing. Because you know what you know what the future is? Windows NT. (laughs) At the time, you know. Plastics, young man. Plastics. So uh, I actually spent six weeks at PC Computing, which was Mac User's sister publication at the time, and then uh, got a job at a garage sale to be a technical editor for a Windows NT system. No, no, they, they weren't selling the magazine at the garage sale. How much did it cost you? How much did that position cost I think cost they might have been selling Mac user at <laughs> the garage sale. It was a throw-in with actually. an ashtray, actually. <laughs> hey, how much for the ashtray? Well, it'll be $5. I'll yeah. cut it down to two, though, if you take this gig editing Windows NT publications. Well, I was at my uh, – then my girlfriend, now my wife, she was having a garage sale and the editor-in-chief of this magazine went to the garage sale and jokingly said – I need a technical editor. Do you guys have anything? And then my wife said, why don't you talk to that guy? And I was I was drinking Irish coffee on the corner with a friend of mine. He came over. We got the talking. A couple of weeks later, he hired me. So, Did he buy anything? I don't remember if he played like an old record album. Or <laughs> I don't remember if he bought anything. Dogs playing poker. Yes. I don't think so. Mm. But um, at the time when it was announced, I was sitting in my cubicle working on NT stuff. So I, when it was announced, I felt a little, you know, oh, no, there's stuff happening now. That, and that pain promising. of regret. Right. Mm. Maybe, so. maybe Apple is coming back. Yes. Mm. I mean so. after that long period of time where they were not coming back. Yeah. But there was a lot of stuff happening at that time too. That was like during the dot-com kind of explosion. So there was a lot of stuff happening at that time mm-hmm. uh, that made me kind of – to add to the excitement, this new iMac that was coming out. So. Uh, Jim, how about you? What were you doing uh, at this time in 1998? Well, when Steve Jobs came back and killed the clones, he also put me out of a job because I was working at UMAX with the Supermac clones. So I was sitting in a cubicle in San Jose working for Philips LCD, just bitter, bitter, bitter man about Apple, all things Apple and Steve Jobs in particular at that point. And uh, so, you know, heh. Who cares about this blue iMac? Um, I've got LCDs to test. <laughs> um, but who knew that I'd be back? Uh, you know, it, it was pretty exciting. And in fact, we did go out and buy one. And I decided that maybe Steve Jobs had an idea in his head of what, you know, where Apple should be going and licensing clones may not be the best thing to do. So, um, you know, it kind of brought me back into the Mac a little bit. Now, for those of us who weren't around in 1998 and who can only look back on it through the through the fog and mists of time, is this a, is it the a machine that you could say was always a hit? Did you know the minute that you got one that it was that this was the game changer, or was it sort of like the example I'll use is the iPod? I, I at least for me, anyhow, you you got the iPod and you sort of held it in your hand and you say, "Oh, this is very interesting and it will probably do very nicely for Apple." And of course, the iPod was a, a huge game changer for the the focus of the company. Uh, how does the how did the original iMac compare to that? I think the original iMac was more obviously a hit than the iPod was. I think the iPod, when it came out, it was I mean, all of these products. 
that are groundbreaking are also weird in some ways because they do things that you're like, why did they do that? And and um, a phone without buttons, <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so when the iPod came out, we we're like, well, yeah, but it's it's expensive, and do people really want this sort of thing? And I mean, I think there were a bunch of us who thought that it was going to be successful, although none of us could have expected how wildly successful the iMac. Though, I mean, it was this incredibly low price for a new Mac. It it was weird in that it didn't have a lot of the old Mac stuff on it. It didn't have SCSI. It didn't have Mac serial. Instead, it had USB, and it was really the thing that made USB push over into the mainstream. I think actually for the entire PC industry, the fact that Apple said, that's it. You've got to build – if you want to get on board with this new low-cost Mac, you've got to build USB peripherals. That's all there is. And there was no FireWire on that first one, just USB. That, um, you know, that made it for a bumpy road at the beginning because there wasn't USB stuff and it was all kind of not working right at the beginning. But I, I think we all figured it would be a big hit just because it was a Mac for what at the time was an incredibly low price, which I, I, I ought to look at my copy of Macworld here and remind myself of what that price was. But I think that was the thing that blew us away was just the fact that it was going to be twelve ninety nine for a computer all in one and that it looked so simple and we just figured this was going to be a great consumer system. And, and um, you know, I think it was more obvious than the iPod was that it was going to be a hit. To me, it did two things. It it harkened to the past, but it also was forward-looking, you know, forward-thinking in that, you know, when the Mac came out, it was this all-in-one with a nine-inch display, and it was an all-in-one unit. And then Apple came out with these series of boxes, you know, the 6100, 8100, the 2FX, all these boxes, the whole confusion of the... Um, Performa, Performa, this, number this, number right. that. And then they came out with this and it all came, you know, went back to, to that all-in-one design but it was also a forward-looking all-in-one design. So that when that when I saw that, that made me said, OK, they're, 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 they're getting back on track. Now, uh, Jim, you, you brought with you some, some charts and graphs. Uh, yeah, it's for, not a podcast with Jim without a with benchmark, <laughs> without some numbers, rustling of yes. benchmark tables. Um, this is for a story which will not actually be live. Uh, if you listen to this podcast when we post it on Wednesday, if you wait a few days, and, that's right, coming soon. We're forward promoting. Phil. Yes, if you wait a few days, the story will be at MacWorld.com. You you did a little project for us uh, on behalf of the 10th anniversary of the iMac. Why don't you? Talk a little about that. Sure. Well, we decided uh, to set out and test a bunch. Uh, we have. I try to keep about as many computers around as possible, and uh, until people just you know come to me with a gun and say, "Give that computer up." So I've got a whole lot of Macs around, and uh, I went down into the uh, storage area and pulled out a bunch of iMacs. And uh, we decided what we would do is try and bring them as up to date as possible. And the thinking being that, what if someone were still using one of these systems around and how, you know, how would it compare to today's iMac? Uh, so to that end, we picked a um, – we did have a Bondi Blue iMac that uh, died during uh, surgery as we tried to uh, bring it up to speed. Um, it was so, nine years old. Yes. It was nine years. In fairness to the, the craftsmanship that went into the original iMac. Yeah. Well, and the uh, – the upgrade process back then, it was not very user-friendly. There was about 400 screws and some shields and other kinds of things, and the RAM was underneath the processor card, and it was it was. I ugly. believe this was such a difficult project. Our, one of our interns actually fled into the woods for, <laughs> for a month. <laughs> That's true. Um, so we uh, our, our earliest iMac uh, that we were able to test was a G3 333 megahertz 
grape variety of the strawberry, grape, and limes. Um, it had uh, – we were able to crank it all the way up to 96 megabytes of RAM uh, with a lot of prodding and sticking a lot of old sticks of memory in. We were able to get it that high. Um, just one test to show you. Uh, we did a zip, unzip archive, we'll say, uh, and it took um, 2 minutes and 26 seconds for this uh, great iMac to do it, and it took 16 seconds for today's iMac to handle the same task. And that was kind of repeated over and over. To archive that archive took 7 minutes and 42 on the iMac and 44 seconds on today's iMac. So, so the point being um – not that this would surprise anyone, but computers have made – and Macs in particular have made a lot of progress in, in the past years. 10 years. But this sort of underscores just quantifies that progress I think is what, what we were shooting for when we right. – when, when I first came to you with this, this idiotic notion. <laughs> that, well, even at the time, I mean the original iMac was a 233 megahertz G3 processor. So even at the time, it, it wasn't meant to be – uh, a speed demon. It was meant to be, uh, you know, a usable system for a low price, and so they they made it thirteen hundred dollars, and you got this two hundred thirty three megahertz system, and I think it uh, was thirty two megs of RAM standard. Right, and so minimal was, uh, minimal setup system is what the ads at the time kind of touted. The, yeah, yeah, it was. There is no step three. Yeah, that's right. It was well, that was the idea. Is you just plugged it in, you didn't have to hook up any cables, and it had a it had a modem port and an Ethernet port. And two USB and audio in and out, and that was it. I mean, it was extremely simple. Um, we should also say that it introduced the uh, the colorful USB keyboard, which uh, was kind of toy like and very small. And one of the most hated Apple products ever, which is the hockey puck mouse, which was because they had to move to USB. It was all new peripherals, so we got the hockey puck then too. Somewhat ironic that the. Um a very beloved product like the iMac would also bring in a very, very hated product like that mouse. A conspiracy theorist would say that this was Apple's way of stoking the fires of the newly competitive USB peripheral for peripheral market <laughs> because everybody was like, God, I got to get a different mouse or I got to buy an ADB to USB converter or something so that I don't have to use that terrible, you know, terrible hockey puck mouse. Well, I remember the big controversy of the day when the when the iMac came out, was the fact that it had no floppy drive. And yes, we shouldn't we, we yes. should we shouldn't forget it had a CD drive, no floppy. And so people were like, "How am I going to transfer my files? Oh no! I, what's this email you're talking about that I have to use?" And they used Ethernet. Better, they used that exact tone of voice. I believe <laughs> they went up a couple octaves. They were so panicked. Well, the USB floppy makers are like, "All right, yes. now is our time to shine." And yeah, I think boy, they called that one right, didn't they? they yeah. That basically just killed the floppy right yeah. right on the spot. Even though – I think they, they admitted at a later time that the, the big problem with that is that they uh, didn't get the uh, CD burning uh, drive into it fast enough right, because right. it was – there was no writable media on the thing. You, you couldn't. You had to transfer it electronically or buy an external device. Mm -hmm. But that was – it was huge, to getting rid of the floppy and everybody was yeah. freaked out about it because everybody still had floppies. But you know they saw the writing on the wall there there and, and, and making a break with SCSI and – and Mac Serial and just saying, forget now, it. We're not going to do it anymore. Now, we've mentioned a couple of the the, um, uh, the iMacs, the original iMacs legacy and that, as you said, uh, uh, moving people to USB, whether they, they wanted to or not, and uh, sort of killing the idea of the floppy disk. But uh, any other lasting things that the iMac can take credit for? 
Well, I mean, it was the first real. I mean, this is the first time we heard the name Jonathan Ive. Mm-hmm. It was the first real striking design-based system from from Apple, where the, all the previous models, like Roman said, those Performas, you know, they were they were all gray boxes. They were not very interesting. The um, the clones. By and large, weren't that interesting either. I mean, they just—they were just computers. And, and no, no offense, and Jim. No, sorry, Jim. <laughs> and, and the and the uh, the commodification of the Mac. I mean, the clones helped that along, which is just let's make them look like PCs. And so Apple kills the clones, and then the first product back, which I think Jim suggested, maybe Jobs has a plan here, is this thing where design is a key feature. And we've seen that replayed how many times since then? But that was where you know the name name Jonathan Ive came out. The fact that this was Bondi Blue, named after the beach in Australia, you know, all of that kind of stuff. It looked so different. It created a market for ridiculous, you know, blue mm. printers and plastic. Everything and, and, and George, George Foreman, Foreman grills, grills. <laughs> George Foreman grills, and everything else. Jim Everybody's and I like, say "Hey, we could have five different colors of plastic and make five different models, and people would buy them all and collect them and trade them." And <laughs> but that was this did that. This is where that came from. I preferred the Sage iMac. <laughs> you know, but we, when it started, you could have any color you want as long as it was Bondi blue. Mm-hmm. Only later did the branched colors out to orange. Out. I believe was the the first tangerine. No, excuse me. Tan- tangerine. It was right. It was tangerine. grape, tangerine, lime. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, down the road. Ruby the and sage and blue Dalmatian. And flower power. And, and flower power. And that's what and that's killed, what killed that. it. <laughs> um, is it safe to say or is it too much to say or is it an overstatement to say that the iMac saved Apple? Wow. I ask in the room with uh, two people who fled, who got away from the Mac industry. I mean the iMac definitely kept Apple alive, I think. I, I, I Whether it saved it. You know, it was a multi-stage process that saved it. The iMac was the first step. Um, the the development of OS X was a key step. The um, the iBook, I think, was a key step. Getting a laptop that was low cost and tying into Wi-Fi networks in the earliest days of wireless networking, those were all important. I mean the OS X decision in some ways saved the Mac, I think, fundamentally. But it, it might not have happened if the iMac hadn't come out and been a good seller and given Apple some cash and some some life, some energy. Mm-hmm. What about you guys on the outside? What, what, what were you – you know, were you tempted to get one? Did you get one? Did, did anybody here actually buy an iMac? Jim said that he did. I did. Uh, a little further on down the road, but yes, we did buy one. I did not. I was still in PC land. So I've always been a laptop guy. So. All right. But I, I do think the iMac should could take a lot of credit for saving Apple. I, what it did, I think, at that time was it broadened the appeal, you know, it, with its design aspect. It a lot of people started to pay attention to it now because it looks so different. And Apple needed to, needed to reach new people when, at that time because they were the onslaught of Windows and just the internal happenings over there. Just They needed to do something. And it reflected that they were doing something different. And well, I think different was what they came out with. Right, and that was in the fall of 97. It was right before right. the iMac came out that they started to think different. And yeah. the, I was going to mention the commercials too. I mean the, those were the Jeff Goldblum commercials and their – they're very mockable, especially today. But the fact was, those are the best TV commercials Apple had done since 1984. 
They were by far the best the best marketing campaign Apple had done. And we take it for granted now, I think, that Apple has these great TV ads and, and billboard ads and magazine ads. But their ad their ads and their marketing were terrible in the in the 90s. It was it was atrocious. I did the letters at Mac user and I, I would get 10 or 20 letters a month that were just, why doesn't Apple advertise? Why doesn't Apple do a better job of advertising? Why aren't Apple's ads more effective? Why don't they tell the story? And, you know, those people were all, were all right. And with the iMac, there was actually an ad on TV that you could go like, oh, Apple is making a claim about why you should buy their product. What an idea. But it had been forever that they had just – their marketing had been terrible. Is it odd that Apple isn't making a bigger deal about the IMAX's 10th anniversary to you? Apple is such a such a forward-looking company that any attempt to talk to Apple – I was kind of blown away when they did the 20th anniversary of the Mac and actually did the replay of the uh, 1984 ad with the iPod put into mm-hmm. it. Um, but that, that may be about all we get in terms of nostalgia from Apple. Maybe, maybe we'll get a, uh, you know, an iMac, uh, iMac ad with an iPhone in it or something like that mm-hmm. but to tie it to the present. But – you know, I don't. It's it's just not about that for them. They 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 could care less. And they've got a point. We we talked to our our uh, some of our young staff here at MacWorld, right, and said, mm-hmm. "Hey, what do you remember from from the iMac being launched?" And they're like, "Well, what? I was fourteen. I, you know, in that voice too, because their voices still haven't broken. <laughs> they're, they're one day they will begin to shave." But you know it's old news now, and for a whole generation of people, the Mac is maybe the iMac, maybe this first generation, or maybe a later one. Or it's the beginning of OS X. But it's the idea of creating nostalgia for the next generation. It's like creating the ne- next big thing that people remember uh, in the future, not about just reminiscing about the past. It is a company that devoted all of, what, 30 seconds to its 30th anniversary in a keynote once. Yeah. I think It's amazing when they mention it at all and yeah. it's usually just one of those. Yeah, he had one slide, right? It's like, mm-hmm. hey, it's me and Waz. OK, moving on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there still a place for the iMac in the – uh, galaxy of Apple products. Is there still room for this machine to grow? Is Should Apple be going in a different direction? That's a good question. I think there's still room for it. Well, thank you, Roman. I think it's a very good question. You see, the key, kids, is to prepare for the podcast by lining up questions beforehand. Well, I, I think... Now moment. let's see if you can give an equally good answer. Right. I, I think, well, it's, it's an interesting question because what readers seem to want most right now is sort of an affordable tower from Apple. And if that product came out, that could damage – I could see that, you know, taking over some sales from the iMac. So, Yeah, but do they only want that because it's not there? I mean – You know, I, I go back and forth on that too. It's is that, like, I mean is that is that 50 percent of the market speaking up or is it 1 percent of the market or right, half of 1 percent right. of the market? Uh, that's – well, the that's, shiny screens. Some people do not want a shiny screen, right? And uh, so your 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 options then are a Mac Mini, a portable, or a Mac Pro. So well, I know. and yeah, well, I guess a, a portable with an external monitor or a MacBook Pro with a with right. a non glare yeah. screen. You know, the iMac though. I mean, that's the main. That's the heart of the the product line now. I mean, with right. the Mac Pro becoming more and more high end. I, you know the laptops do incredibly well, so the laptops for a lot of people like like Phil here that's what they think of when they think of their Mac. But that iMac now is so powerful that it's no longer the kind of compromised cheap system. It's it's driving an external monitor and it's got a three gigahertz processor and huge amounts of RAM and 
It's uh, no, the mini is now the compromise cheap system, right? So right. maybe which, that's which, where we, we should be asking where that fits in. Down well, and that plan. goes to Roman's point, I think, which is maybe you know that's the 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 piece that isn't quite right that people are clamoring for something the, yeah. more than that. Right, right. But but you know we we did this story what like four or five months ago in MacWorld and posted on the website that was the new rules for buying a Mac that John Seff and I wrote and. I thought we were going to get a lot more negative feedback because essentially what we said is, look, if you want to buy a non-laptop system, you should just buy an iMac. Forget the Mac Pro. It's overkill for almost everybody. And I thought we'd get a lot of pushback and we didn't. We actually got a lot of praise for that who people were like, yeah, that's true. It's really true. And so the, it's like the iMac. I, I wouldn't have been caught – I wouldn't have caught – I didn't want to be caught dead using an iMac I guess for most of the iMac's life. Because I was one of those people who always said, well, I'm going to get a Power Mac. I'm going to get a, a powerful system. I don't want this iMac. It's nice and all, but it's not for me. And something's happened in the last few years and you know, the, next, the next system I get at my house is going to be an iMac because it's powerful enough for almost everything. And that's a, that's a big transformation because 10 years ago, it was the you know, it was compromised the email and internet machine system for your mom kind of mm -hmm. system. Yeah. It was a big deal when it could do iMovie. Well, sure. Yeah, iLife. You know all the all the things that start. I guess I guess we should say that this was the first product that started with I. Mm. Lowercase I's that plague us to this day began ten years ago. Well, with the uh, if the Mac Pros ever do start handling their eight cores, eight processing cores, and put a little more distance between themselves and the iMac, then you know that would be a different conversation. But right now, since Two cores is about all they can really handle. Uh, there's, there's just not that much difference between a high-end iMac and a low-end Mac Pro. Yeah, well, and when we get when we get to the multi-core future, you got to wonder. Um, I hear talk about how we're going to be seeing consumer systems with four cores at some point here. So, who knows? Uh, it 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 seems like Apple has decided that the iMac is the mainstream system now. Instead of the low end system, and the mm -hmm. Mac Pro is just for the high end. But who knows what's going to happen? And the Mac Mini is the great, the great mystery. Well, whatever does happen, we will uh, certainly be here to discuss it. And I guess that will end our uh, our look back at the at the iMac and on this its tenth anniversary. So back to you, Chris, and we'll look forward to you uh, kicking it back to us in another year when we're celebrating the iBooks tenth anniversary. Thanks, Phil. And that wraps up this edition of the Macworld Podcast, sponsored by Audible.com. Audible.com is the Internet's leading provider of spoken audio entertainment. Macworld Podcast listeners can get a free audiobook now at www.audiblepodcast.com slash Macworld. I'd like to thank Dan Morin, Philip Michaels, Jason Snell, Jim Galbraith, Roman Loyola, and, of course, you for listening. Again, if you have any comments or questions, feel free to drop us a line at podcast at macworld.com or you can leave us a voicemail at 415-520-9761. This is Chris Breen reminding you that you can find more Apple, Mac, iPod, iPhone, Apple TV, and technology news, views, and information at macworld.com. Thanks very much for listening. See you next time.